Thank you for being here, and I thank you for your testimony. The chair will now recognize members for five minutes of questions, beginning with myself. Mr. Fry-Hagi, I would like to begin with you and with reference to H.R. 4524. In your testimony, you mentioned that this bill can be a means to strengthen public safety in Indian country. Can you expand on that and how exactly the department thinks this, that, that this uh, bill will improve public safety? Yeah, I think it'll improve public safety starting with streamlining the process to make it easier to recognize tribal law enforcement. Uh, it's uh, creating, ensuring the tribes have a process that's similar to what BIA does, that will speed up the process to ensure they have law enforcement who can be on the streets, um, you know, supporting public safety. Second, uh, as noted, just the issue of pay and benefits is really critical in terms of competing in a really tough market. There's law enforcement shortages all over the country. Every jurisdiction deals with it. So by increasing the benefits that tribal law enforcement can offer uh, to their, their officers um, for things such as pension, especially uh, retirement, that's going to help with their ability to compete with other employers. I thank you for that. And then I, I also want to ask you a question about H.R. 6443. We've heard from the Homul tribal leadership that one of the parcels at issue within that particular bill has been pending in the administrative land interest process at the Bureau since August 2015. That seems like an enormous amount of time. Is that the usual amount of time for parcels to be waiting to be placed into trust? And what could be done to speed up this process? Yeah, it will obviously depend across different applications. Uh, I believe when the administration started, uh, that average time was close to three years uh, for the fee to trust. Right now we're at about a two year level and the goal is to get down to one year. Um, the reason that it can be slow uh, can be related to things such as uh, litigation, uh, the cost of title insurance for tribes can sometimes be challenging, sometimes the cost related environmental reviews. Uh, so the actions we're taking which have led to some progress to date and hopefully continued progress uh, include a couple of things. One is we're prioritizing uh, filling vacancies for realty positions. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, we also do need extra funding for more realty positions would be helpful. The president's FY 2024 budget requested additional funding for realty staff. But we're also, outside of the resources, we're taking management actions. Uh, one of them is proposed amendments to the 151 rule for uh, fee to trust, uh, which includes changes such as bringing some surveying activities from BLM back to BIA so that you have fewer handoffs in the process. By having it with one organization, we'd hope that streamlines it. Similarly, our trust services team has developed a tracker for every fee to trust application so that all Indian Affairs leadership can track that, ensure compliance and, and hold people accountable. And there's also an external portal so that tribal leaders can see where their application is so that enables their ability uh, to ask questions. So we're hoping these, these and some other efforts will continue to bring that time down. And I encourage you to continue with those types of, of uh, actions because I think that this is incredibly important that, we've, that we speed up that process for our tribes around the country. Uh, Mr. Michael Erickson, I would like to ask you a question. You testified that in your testimony that uh, the financial cost that the Colville tribe pays to recruit and train officers so that these officers are able to conduct patrols on their own. When an officer that you pay to train leaves, what kind of secondary budget impact does this have on the tribe? Um, 
Thank you for that question. So essentially, it's just money that you're, I wouldn't say throwing down the drain, but they go to some other municipality. So it's just, you got to reinvest that money again. So then, hence our budget goes up. And a lot of those are end up being tribal funds that we don't get otherwise. So it's just money we're continuing to reinvest in new employees. Um, that with this recruitment retention with this new bill hopefully keeps those employees around so we're not just training them up like like uh, congressman newhouse mentioned we have really well trained uh, police officers and going to these other agencies because they are so well trained and they have all the the money we invested into them so i think it's just cost you then you have a new recruit come in and have to redo that um, reinvest that money so well i hope that we can avoid that by passing this legislation and give you some additional tools to retain to to uh, to retain your your officers. Ms. Pinto, um, I am running out of time, but I just want to quickly ask you, what would it mean to your tribal members to be able to return to their community and have services available to them there? Thank you for the question, Madam Chair. It would mean everything. It would mean survival. It would mean continued um, our culture and traditions. It would mean um, our elders having a place to come back to and practice and um, language revitalization. It would mean the world to us. And I know time is of the essence here and you want to do the right thing. I feel um, that I'm hurrying and my council is hurrying. I brought an elder here and we want this done. We want the wrongs of the past to be corrected as you continue to state. And I appreciate that so much. It would mean our survival and continued existence. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for that. The chair now recognizes the ranking member, Ms. Leisure Fernandez, for five, day, five minutes of questioning. Thank you, uh, witnesses. And, and I, may I say the testimony was so powerful, so, so very powerful. And the themes uh, that you played, the, the need to restore the land for everything that it means, which you were beautifully highlighted what it means. Uh, the idea of that time memorial is not simply two words, they are when the valleys were formed, right? Uh, very, very powerful. You know, the need to reinvigorate, reinvigorate, what a beautiful word, Chair uh, Pino, about what getting the land and having it at yours would mean for culture and community. The need to respect, respect the safety um, of uh, community members, and that without this we are disrespecting the need for that safety and to restore those buffalo who we know were destroyed because there was a desire to destroy the native people. And so thank you, it was very, very powerful. Um, I hope I say this right, ha ani. Uh, thank you uh, for that. And I think when we look about the need to restore the ha ani, um, that we're talking about a very small portion of the aboriginal lands of the five communities. I don't want to call it the landless. Those were your lands. So you're not the landless. It's your ha-ani taken from you. Can you just describe to us, so we have that concept of um, how much was the aboriginal lands and how much of that are you seeking to get restored, Mr. Reinhardt? Thank you for the question, Ranking Member Ledger Fernandez. We're talking about half of 1%. And to just to try to give some context, uh, the Tongass National Forest is a little over 17 million acres. It's roughly the size of West Virginia. And then if you throw in um, Glacier Bay National Park 
and other properties around southeastern Alaska, we're talking about over 20 million acres. 115,000 acres total for the five communities would be um, smaller than a small county in West Virginia. It, it, it's, it's really, um, you could walk across 115,000 acres in, in a relatively short period of time, but it would take you hours and hours to drive around 20 million acres. It, it's, it's really just a very, very small, small piece. And, and that's, that's hard for a lot of people to, to get that perspective of what we're talking about here, that we're only asking for a little tiny bit of our land. And, and unfortunately, a lot of our land has been taken away and, and it's been taken up over the last 50 years by the city and boroughs, by the state of Alaska, uh, put into conservation for wilderness areas or special use districts. And we're not touching any of that. So we, we've been pushed further and further away and have less and less choice as time goes by. Every year that goes by, there's, there's less land available Thank to select. Thank you. And I think that that does give us the, the picture. And Mr. French, uh, I know that you have those uh, other 17 million other acres that you are going to need to manage. And so I uh, take it, what would your answer be to whether or not you think that this transfer would make sense given the small amount of land? And are you going to still be able to manage the rest of those 17 million acres? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, of course, I think this is critically important. Um, we recognize and, and support that um, we should be restoring these lands. Um, it's a very, very small amount. Thank Does you. it have implications to our management? Sure, but that doesn't change the right and wrong of doing this. Right, and, and that's what federal agencies are supposed to be doing, right? It's not static. We need to not be worried about change, but say some change needs to be welcomed and, and brought in. Uh, Chairman Erickson, um, you know, thank you so very much for uh, coming in and describing what does it mean on the ground. Um, and I think that this vacancy rate, like what happens when you only have, what happens when something happens? You, did, I think you said, was it three officers at a time? Uh, so that means that if there are emergencies in two different parts of your community, how does a call be made as to what, you know, who goes, who, who gets taken care of and who doesn't? Uh, so you end up, thank you for the question. So you end up in a lot of safety issues too for our officers. Um, response time could be 30 minutes to hour, hour and a half from one side of the reservation to the other. So our reservation is about the size, a little larger than Delaware, just, as a, just for example for everyone. Um, so the response time, <laughs> officer safety and our uh, child member safety, if something's going on like domestic violence or whatever it may be that, and then the officer has no backup as well. So. Uh, recruiting and retained officers were about two thirds of our total uh, police force right now. If we get the fully yes. staffed, that helps with uh, safety for everybody. Thank you so very much. And my time has expired. Thank you for bringing to light and giving giving uh, giving visual to what you are all facing. With that, Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you, Ranking Member Ledger Fernandez. Um, I will recognize myself for the next five minutes. And thank you all the witnesses for coming uh, today here. Um, my first question will be for the chairwoman of the Yamul Indian Village. Uh, Chairman, uh, Chairwoman Pinto, you, in your testimony, you mentioned it, that the plans the tribe has for the parcels that, that will be taken into trust, including building housing, housing for tribal members. 
Um, my question will be, what will having a larger land base mean to the tribe and how will this promote home ownership um, and community? I appreciate the question, Madam Chair. Um, currently right now, my members are scattered throughout San Diego area and have unable to, been to, to live in community together for 18 years. Um, this will mean for us to be able to revitalize our community, reinvigorate our culture, be able to uh, borrow sugar from one another. I don't eat sugar, but the rest of the uh, council does. Um, <clears throat> it's just about, um, you know, COVID actually amplified the need for our social gatherings, our cultural gatherings, and the need to be next to one another because we can certainly feel it now. And as you may be aware, San Diego is super, super expensive. And so we need to um, have this land taken into trust to, in order to build homes for our people, for stability, to exercise our sovereignty, protect our culture. Thank you, Chairwoman Pinto. Uh, my question will be now to Chairman Erickson. Uh, in your testimony, um, you mentioned that the Colby tribe currently has eight tribal officer vacancies out of a total staff of 29 officers. Um, being in a rural community, what kind of challenges does this present to the public safety of your reservation? Thank, thank you for that question. So it, it creates a lot of issues with uh, safety for our membership, safety for our officers. Um, also can, you know, if something happens with one of those individuals and they, um, where do they go? We've had an incident last year, a uh, murder, where the response time was not very uh, very quick. And so uh, catching those suspects, we had officers get injured. Um, luckily, we had a lot of help with other municipalities after the incident, but it creates just a lot of issues with safety for officers, safety for our membership. Okay. Thank you. Um, last month, this committee heard testimony from two Washington state tribes that in recent years, the Washington state legislature has made it difficult for state and local law officers to make arrests for drug possession and has instead required that these offenders be diverted to a treatment multiple times before they can be arrested. Uh, what kind of impact have these policies had on uh, your reservation? Uh, because of the state and local law enforcement in our area, they have not been allowed to enforce drug possession laws with arrests. Um, this activity bleeds over on the Colville Reservation, and we end up, we end up being the ones that have to deal with it. Uh, tribal police forces are having to deal with an influx of drug-related offenses because our neighboring jurisdictions until very recently have not been able to make the arrest for drug possessions. Uh, also, we'll just add that a lot of the um, drug um, dealers seem to find the reservation as like a safe haven. Um, where we can't end up prosecuting them if they're on fee land and they're non-tribal. So we're, we're trying to get some of these things corrected um, as we move forward with other, other stuff. But um, that's one of the big things we seem to be an influx onto the reservation. I think every reservation struggles that uh, some similar when I've talked to other tribal leaders too. Thank, Thank you, Chairman, for your, for your answer. Um, with that, I yield back. And now um, I will recognize Ms. Bertola from Alaska for her five minutes. Thank Ms. you, Bertola. Madam Chair. Um, I would like to ask um, Mr. French and Tashi some, some questions, and I, I think I'll start with you, Tashi Reinhardt. Um, you know, you describe the ways in which you and other community members have worked with the five communities um, of the landless tribes um, in order to address concerns that they have regarding the bill, and, and I wondered if you could speak more to that. Thank you, Congresswoman Patola. Um, the the uh, reference you make, I, I believe, is with the communities of 
Ketchikan, Wrangell, Petersburg, Haines, and, and Tennessee. And we have met dozens and dozens of times with representatives from those towns. We're from those towns. And, and uh, the, the primary concern that came up over and over again was access. People were worried about, can I still go pick berries in my favorite blueberry bush? Can I fish from my favorite fishing stream? Can I camp where I like to camp? Can I hunt where I like to hunt? Do I have access for subsistence use? The bill, as it's presented, has, I think, a little over six pages on access and easements and guarantees in perpetuity that people will have, continue to have access for recreational hunting, fishing, subsistence uses. And, and that is um, in this legislation. And that makes this differ from um, ANCSA back in 1971, where those provisions were not there. Thank you. Thank you. And as just a little follow-up, how has, have your organizations been working with national and local environmental groups? Thank you again for that question. We have met dozens and dozens of times with, um, primarily we started with SEAC, the Southeast Alaska um, Conservation Council. And it took a, a long time for us to kind of um, sit and talk back and forth, listening to each other. And, and for them to understand that this really is not about logging, which is the, the, their main worry and concern, that this is really about social justice and returning land back to its rightful owners. And, uh, and they understand something of native stewardship. They also understand they can't say, and, and I don't just mean SEAC when I say they, excuse me, I, I mean the environmental conservation community. And um, they realize on one side they can't say that they're supportive of, um, of natives and tribal, tribal governments for um, backing some of the things that they're after and some of their goals and objectives. And, and then on the other hand, not support this. So they, I think they, they've all come around a long ways. Most recently, uh, there was a, a letter of support from, from the um, Wilderness Society with over a million members. And they, they didn't just come out and support, they came out in very strong support and apologized for their past positions. You know, I, I want to add to your comments. Wrangell, one of our southeast communities, experienced a terrible um, mudslide, landslide, and they lost a number of lives. And folks from their uh, municipal government came in last week to DC. They had had a trip planned. They weren't sure if they were going to come. They, they did come. And I want to say they were saying very good things behind your back about the work that the tribe in Wrangell has done, um, the work. They were instrumental in helping with the emergency afterwards and making sure there was a disaster declaration and just helpful in every way. And so I think um, that is a really good reflection of the, tr the tribes that we're talking about in these five landless communities. And I wonder if you could just explain briefly how long you have been working on this issue. Thank, thank you for that. Um, Wrangell is a very, very strong community. They recently lost a whole family, uh, a mother who grew up there, uh, the father, um, teenage daughter in high school and two um, elementary school children. Um, and then there was at least one other person missing. So it's very sad, but the whole community comes together very strong and supports each other. I grew up in that community. Um, I grew up where one of our leaders back to the, really the father of ANCSA, William Paul Sr., the one that brought suit for Teton versus the United States, was my father's uncle. 
And I grew up with him coming to our house and listening to them argue about land claims when I was a child. I, <clears throat> I promised my father on his deathbed, literally, that I would fight and I would continue this fight. Part of what I was explaining when I was explaining earlier about Hashuka, the past, the present, and the future, goes back to William Paul in his fight. You know, clear back into the 1930s when they formed the Central Council of Tlingit Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska in front of the Amby Hall in Wrangell on a winter day, kind of dark, windy, wet. Peter Simpson looks at William Paul and says, Willie, whose land is this? He says, it's ours. He said, whose land is it? It's our land. He said, then fight for it. And William Paul took that fight and took it serious and took it to his deathbed. Hashuka has to do with recognizing my grandmother, Gagi, and my granddaughter, who carries her name, Gagi, into the future. It has to do with recognizing my father, Yehkuk, Ravenbox. I'm talking about the Box of Daylight story. It has to do with Yehkuk, my father, and the promise I made him, and Yehkuk, my grandson, who carries that name today. And it has to do with this fight. I'm trying to explain to you, this is something that has been my whole life. I'm 64 years old. I was 11, 12 years old when Anxa passed, and I'm still here fighting this today, and I don't want my son, Gushlein, or my grandchildren to have to come fight this. We need you to pass this, please. Thank you. Thank you. Madam Chair, I know I'm just over my time, but I just, um, I'm going to forego the question to Mr. French because it was touched on a moment ago, but I do want to thank Mr. Carlson for his recognition of Congressman Young, and um, we know that your people are made of buffalo, and we know that every part of that buffalo is sacred. The bone marrow, the bone, you, I know that you eat everything, the cartilage, everything, and so I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of your people. Thank, thank you to the sponsor of the bill, 4748, Ms. Bertola. Um, your time has expired. Now we'll recognize Mr. LaMalfa for five minutes to speak on his legislation 6368. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, my apologies uh, for simultaneous committee I was in, but uh, kept me out of here early on here. So anyway, I was able to get my stuff done there and do something right today. So um, uh, appreciate your indulgence. So I, I just didn't want to speak on HR. 6368, the Indian Buffalo Management Act, and I'm uh, glad to work on that with Ms. Peltola. And uh, as also pick up the um, piece, uh, pick, pick this up from our, our great friend Don Young, who carried it uh, previously. And um, so as we know, the American bison has had an amazing place in our country's history, and it's certainly a, a complicated history as well. Uh, this. Uh, National, our national mammal once roamed from east of the Mississippi well into the western U.S. and more. Until the 1880s, then they were hunted from, from an estimated population of somewhere between 30 and 60 million down to under 1,000. The last herds of bison only ex existed in, in Yellowstone. But uh, through a lot of great efforts, they've rebounded uh, many private citizens under the Lacey Act, and especially Native American tribes, many of whom are now members of the Intertribal, Intertribal Buffalo Council. Department of Interior and Source Service already carry out some buffalo habitat programs, including transfers of their surplus bison to private owners and to tribes. But it is an ad hoc program that without congressional authorization, authorization 
it could create problems that our witnesses are ongoing uh, discussing here today as well. So our bill would seek to create a bison and bison habitat management program at the Department of Interior and grant them authority to transfer surplus bison as well. It includes substantial protections for state and local landowners and ranchers to protect their existing herds. Uh, this legislation will solidify the relationship between Interior and the tribes for the management of bison herds while allowing tribes to pursue new commercial offerings for bison products. So Madam Chairman, from uh, the doldrums of less than 1,000, the American bison has rebounded so far to around 450,000 today. So I look forward to engaging in this ongoing, uh, in this effort and continuing our work to restore the American bison while continuing responsible land management and providing new economic markets to our tribes. So seeing I have a little bit of time here under my five, I think I'd launch into a question to uh, uh, President of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, Irvin Carlson. Um, you've, uh, you've seen that the, the council faces uh, a lack of a formal restoration program at the Department of Interior. And so could you speak more about how a formal program can help give financial security and you know, more dexterity to maintaining and starting even new tribal buffalo herds? Thank you, Congressman Lamalfa. Um, creating a permanent um, funding within the, the Department of the Interior would help. Many years we've been here with uh, just at the whim, I guess, of whatever funding there is available um, for the program coming from different um, parts within the interior and never know if it's going to be solidified or be there every year. Um, we have to work with that as to the tribes that are asking for funding to help their, their operations. So creating that, um, that funding there or that program within the interior, making that uh, um, permanent there would help us to um, increase, um, hopefully, uh, and knowing that every year we do have that funding. Stability. Uh, the, the stability is really yeah. what we need there um, to keep the program ongoing. As every year we have, right now we're up to 84 tribes. Every year we have uh, three or four tribes joining. And with the funding that we do have and don't know if we're going to have it, that they're asking for funding to, to so build you're, you're 84 members, that leads to my next question. How, how many... What's the growth say in the last few years? How long has the council been around and what's your growth been? We've last been year? in existence since 1992, started with 10 tribes uh, throughout the years. We have um, grown now to 84 tribes. We do, there's a tribe sitting here that joins, gonna join, talk to us, join right again. Um, so there's a lot of interest, is that's, that's what the growth is and being part of this is, is a possibility. Every year we're having, yeah. it's just the interest is there, the need is there. Um, every year we're having three to six tribes that are joining. Great. All right. I'll try and follow up with my, another question on uh, a little bit later on what uh, what are the considerations tribes are looking at if they were starting their own herd. So I'll, I'll yield for now. We'll come back to that. So thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Lamalfa. Um, now I recognize my good friend, uh, Mr. Stauber, for five minutes. Thank you very uh, much, Madam Chair, and I appreciate being waved onto the committee uh, today. I'd like to take a few minutes to address my support for H.R. 4748, 
the Unrecognized Southeast Alaska Native Communities Recognition and Compensation Act, which I am a proud to co-sponsor. I want to also thank my colleague and good friend from the great state of Alaska, Representative Peltola, for her leadership in introducing this legislation. This legislation was something that our former colleague, the late Representative Don Young, long championed. Following his passing last year, was honored to assume first sponsorship of the bill, and I did not hesitate to co-sponsor the legislation when Representative Potola asked me to do so earlier this summer. Mr. Reinhardt, can you share how the Southeast Alaska Native communities have been negative, negatively affected by their inability to incorporate under the 1971 law. In other words, in what ways have these communities been shortchanged because they have not been able to incorporate? Thank you, Congressman Stauber. Thank you for the co-sponsorship. Thank you for taking up the, the, um, the mantle when Don Young passed. Don, Don was somebody I've known for, for decades, for, for, for a, lot, a lot of my life. And thank you for making this a bipartisan bill. We really appreciate that. How are we um, impacted? I, you know, I touched on a lot about the spiritual part already, about how that affects us by being separated from our land and, and how taking it away has really left us spiritually destitute and how this can be restored. But beyond that, there's also the, the, the economic side that, that really needs to be spoke about. When you look at the other communities around southeastern Alaska that have their lands and, and the, the amount of dividends and scholarships and, and profits and, and money that they, they have had for their people and their communities compared to ours, um, if you go to Huna, a, a very successful um, corporation there, I, I look up to them as, as a, a leading shining star. They, they've built a, a port facility for, for cruise ships to come in. There are so many jobs in Huna that everybody that wants to work has a job. And um, they have to bring people in. They have a hard time with housing. Yeah, Mr. Reinhardt, just because of time, would, you, would, you, would it be safe to say that hundreds of millions of dollars of e economic benefit did not come your way because... At, uh, at least. At yes. least. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, in his testimony, Chief Deputy French shared a, a concern from the Forest Service that the land conveyances outlined in H.R. 4748 would inhibit the ability for the Forest Service to meet its timber harvest goals. I just want to remind Deputy French that um, in the Superior and Chippewa National Forest in northern Minnesota, you're not aiming allowing and putting forth a maximum allowable sale. Respectfully, I don't think it is a valid excuse to fail to finally correct this 50-year wrong, to fail to properly recognize and compensate the Alaska Native communities across Southwest Alaska simply because doing so will make it harder for the Forest Service to meet its timber harvesting goals, to me is unacceptable. These are vast tracts of forest under management by the Forest Service, whether it be in uh, other areas of Alaska, my home state of Minnesota, or other parts of the country that can be utilized to meet timber harvesting goals. It's not right to deny these communities what they deserve. Mr. Reinhardt, do you have confidence that the Southwest Alaska communities we are discussing today would be able to adequately manage the forest, take part in necessary logging activity, and otherwise properly and responsibly manage and land conveyed to them by the Forest Service if this bill were to pass and be signed into law? Thank you for that question, Congressman. I have no doubt. We, we've been stewarding the land for 10,000 years. 
and and I'm sure that we can we can manage for a few more years. Yeah. We 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 have experience from the other communities. Uh, for instance, myself, I, I am the president and CEO of Tlingit Haida Tribal Business Corporation, and I sit on the board of Sea Alaska Corporation. We have a lot of experience within our tribe and, and within other communities that would be helpful. I have no doubt that we could manage it. Mr. Reinhardt, uh, I would just say you, you are, a, are a tremendous communicator and a tre tremendous advocate. I've only watched you for just a few minutes. You're in the right place at the right time. You're and I'm sure your father would be, he's very proud of you right now. Um, I just, Mr. Madam Chair, I just want to one more question for Chairman Erickson. In your testimony, you mentioned that out of the 234 tribal law enforcement programs across the nation, more than 90% of them have been contracted out under the Indian Self-Determination and Educational Assistance Act. The officers in that 90% are tribal employees and not federal employees. Thus, they do not receive the benefits of federal pension and retirement. Can you elaborate on the constraints the Colville Tribal Law Enforcement has faced as a result of this disparity between federal and tribal employee uh, benefits. Um, thank you for that question. So yeah, I guess losing a lot of our officers to other municipalities, like I mentioned that earlier. Um, having this, if this is uh, passed, would help with uh, recruiting a lot of younger officers. We have a lot of younger tribal officers that become in um, uh, PD, uh, PD officers now that I think will help with their um, enticing them to come and work for us and have a whole career. Hopefully, that's the whole idea is to get more child members too in these positions because uh, they want to stay home. They want to be there. Um, they want to help their community, so I think having them um, would... As a former law enforcement officer myself, I, I totally agree with you. Madam Chair, thanks for being gracious, and I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Stauber. Thank you, the witnesses. Now we're going to uh, finish with the questions of Mr. LaMalfa. Uh, you're allowed for five minutes. Am I the only one? Okay. All right. I'll, I'll go quick then. So, uh, well, you, you kind of heard it already, Mr. Carlson, so I'll... Uh, I'll uh, re-up uh, re that, I lost my page, but um, um, when, uh, when you find people applying or wanting to be part of the program, what, what impediment is there that, uh, what are you hearing from tribes that are interested in uh, adding herds or creating new herds, adding two herds or creating new herds? Is, is what's, what are the challenges or speed bumps in that process? One of the biggest challenges that they do have is, is the funding for all of the infrastructure that they need to have in place to house um, Buffalo. And one of the big things that bringing back Buffalo is bringing back a big part of their culture, but also for health reasons. But uh, the infrastructure, as I mentioned in, in my testimony, like uh, fencing um, and for grass range management, uh, waterways for these animals, all of those infrastructures um, that they need in place is one of the big things that um, having that in place, the funding for that. Okay, so mainly a funding issue is is what you're hearing mostly from tribes that would want to be part of a expansion. Well, the biggest part that really bringing back um, Buffalo to them is is a big thing is the cultural part of it. Mostly is it it's first and foremost it's a part of them that has been taken away their culture and bringing that back. And also with that, a lot of issues, um, um, they want to create also um, employment for their tribes um, is a big thing. You know, a lot of tribes, there's not that um, 
that that many employments within the reservations. One of that is to create that, uh, create some revenue for their tribe to help out, along with being the cultural part of it. Okay. All right. Well, we look forward to working more with with uh, all the tribes and expanding upon that and being successful with this legislation. I appreciate my colleague from Alaska, Ms. Peltola, being a partner on it too. So especially in memory of my good pal, Mr. Don Young as well, coming back. So I guess with that, um, the whole conversation reminds me of a Roger Miller song from the late 60s called You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. And we'll have, we'll have more. We'll have more opportunities to test that, hopefully, with this. So anyway, I, I had to do it. I'm sorry. I yield back. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. LaMalfa. Uh, with that, I want to thank all the witnesses for their valuable testimony and the members for the questions as well. Um, the members of the committee may have some additional questions uh, to, for the witnesses, and we will ask you to respond on this on, in, in writing. Uh, under committee rule uh, three, members of the committee may submit, must submit questions uh, to the committee clerk by 5 p.m. on Friday, December the 8th. Uh, 2023, and the hearing record will be held open for 10 business days for these response, responses. If there's no further uh, business, um, without objection, the committee stand adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>